Welcome to Season 2 of The Plants We Eat, a podcast from the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens that investigates the fascinating history, biology, and culture behind the plants we use for food. This is Jeff Gilman and Cindy Proctor. Together we have over 50 years of research, teaching, and hands-in-the-dirt experience with growing plants. Cindy, this is going to be a fun one. This is going to be a fun one. I love this tree, by the way. Yeah? You like the mitten? I like the mittens. It's a great ID characteristic. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about sassafras. And this was recommended by our friend Nolan Hancock. He wrote to me and and gave us a list of plants that we could possibly do. And this was... uh, This was the one that we decided on. And you know, Nolan, I never would have come up with this, but it's surprising because I I, I have a little bit of immediate history with myself. You know, I'm from the Midwest, from Missouri, and some of my relatives that are from the Ozark area used this plant to gnaw on the roots because it has such a great flavor. And if, if none of you know, it is a component or used to be for root beer. So, and it has a very distinct smell of root beer. I mean, it's a hint, you know, but if you're in the root, it's very prevalent, that taste. So thank you, Nolan, for that. And then I forgot all about it, was in school for plants. And one of my professors, I deed it and I went crazy like, this is sassafras, you know, so it was, it's a fun plant. So thank you. It's a really neat plant. Nostalgic for me. And when I was first introduced to it, well, first of all, the roots, of course, are incredible. But one of the things that amazed me about it is that the roots have this, I'll call it a wintergreen fragrance and flavor. Mm -hmm. The stem really doesn't, or at least to a much decreased extent. But then the leaves, to me, they almost smell like Fruit Loops Mm -hmm. when you crush them up. Mm -hmm. This tree is, of course, uh, used primarily for root beer, but, well, you know, we'll get into that later. It has a lot of different uses. There are three extinct and one extinct species, so three species currently living, one extinct. The sassafras that we deal with is native to the United States. Sassafras is dioecious, in other words, separate males and females, although for our purposes, that doesn't really matter. Because we're not, we're not using it for its flowers or even admiring it too much. Exactly. Yeah. It has been used for a number of things over the years. And and I'm going to start with one that I find really, really interesting, but which you might find a little bit strange. And that's its use as an insect killer and repellent. I don't know if you've spent any time looking at that. There was actually a patent filed back in 1899 for use of sassafras oil as an insect repellent. We now know that it works very well. In fact, sassafras oil can be used as a synergist. In other words, it works with this compound, a synergist for pyrethrum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pyrethrum is a naturally occurring insecticide that you can buy in almost any store. And the sassafras oil helps to control it. Now, sassafras oil... Actually, you won't find very much. In fact, even though it works as a synergist for pyrethrums, you will not find it available. The reason you won't find it available is because saffron is considered carcinogenic, and saffron is the major component of sassafras oil. We're going to talk about saffron in just a second. In fact, we have all kinds of stuff that we're going to, that I've already mentioned that we're going to get to later. Okay, so let's start with the uh, what I find to be almost the most interesting part of the plant, and it's not the roots. We'll get there in a second. It's the gumbo. <laughs> the gumbo. <laughs> the gu- well, yes. Uh, the leaves of the sassafras tree are used in Creole cooking. Mm-hmm. They are ground up, and the ground up leaves are called uh, fillet, or it's actually spelled F I L E, but would be pronounced fillet. And that is a thickener for your Louisiana gumbos. In fact, gumbo comes from the Choctaw word for fillet, which is gumbo, spelled with a K instead of a G. 
So that is the that's the first part of the of sassafras that I find interesting. Now it's the young leaves that provide that stickiness, you know, and the okay. stems. Mm-hmm. So that that uh, yes, it's a thick. So we don't go for the old ones. We don't mm-hmm. pick them in the fall. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it does have a lovely fall color. This yes, is a good, it does. It, isn't it a pretty pretty? It is a pretty it's tree. A, it's a great you know, tree. Both uh, Cindy and I have spent much of our careers working with what we'll call ornamental mm-hmm. plants. So. There are a few trees that I know that both of us just consider absolutely gorgeous. And this is one of the trees that, look, you may not be interested in this tree for food, but it is uh, just a beautiful, beautiful tree. It really is. Ornamentally, it's, it's just different because of those mitten-shaped leaves and, uh, and the fall colors is, is, is excellent. Beyond the fillet, beyond the uh, Creole cooking, there's, of course, also the fragrance and the flavor of the roots. Now, the leaves of sassafras do not contain a significant amount of this saffron that I was talking about earlier. The roots, on the other hand, do contain a lot of saffron. And saffron, it was discovered that saffron is actually at least somewhat carcinogenic. Is it really much of an issue? I have to say that I don't think it's quite the issue that it's made out to be, but it certainly has proven to be carcinogenic in various studies, so I'm not going to say that it's absolutely safe. That's absolutely not true. And in fact, in high doses, saffron can be quite toxic. So it's obviously got something going on. So, but at one time it was used to make root beer. Yes. And in fact, so we're going to take a sidetrack just so you all know. So when I uh, knew we were going to do sassafras, I immediately went to a standby that I have, an old book on edible plants in the wild. And it's called Edible Wild Plants of Eastern North America. No surprise there. And this is a book that was published in, um, let's see, its first publication was 1943. At least that's what it has in the book right here. So I looked through this book, and before I got to the page on sassafras, I happened to open the front cover and saw the authors. The authors of Edible Wild Plants include Merritt Lyndon Fernald, who's the late director, is the director of the Gray Herbarium at Harvard University, a relatively well-known plantsman. His name, of course, uh, while not well known to me when I opened the book, you can find out all about him. The second author, and from what I understand, the author actually did most of the work on this book, was Alfred Charles Kinsey. Do you know who Alfred Charles Kinsey is? No. I think you do. Alfred Charles Kinsey happens to be the author of the Kinsey Report. Oh, okay. And if you still don't know who I'm talking about, he's well known for two books, The Sexual Behavior of the Human Male and The Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, both of which were extremely controversial books of the 1950s. This guy (laughs) talked about stuff that really nobody had talked about openly before. And you're saying, what's he doing talking about plants? Well, this guy was a general biologist. This guy did a lot of work and a lot of things. There's a, uh, if you're interested in this piece of history at all, there's a very interesting paper on, on this called The Second Kinsey Report, and it's by Peter Deltredici. His last name is spelled D-E-L-T-R-E-D-I-C-I. And he wrote a very interesting article on this uh, second Kinsey Report, this book on edible wild plants. Okay, sidelight over, let's get back to talking about sassafras. In edible wild plants, there is this fascinating note. So we know that Sassafras was used for root beer. There's no surprise there, and we'll get into that in a minute. But where did the original ideas for root beer come from? Well, I'm going to quote now from Edible Wild Plants. If anyone doubts the appreciation of sassafras tea in the South, he should note the following, sent by Dr. E.L. Lee of Bridgeport, Alabama, in 1907 to the American botanist. 
And by the way, Cindy, I actually looked this up, so I confirmed this quote because I thought it was so interesting. Here's the quote by Dr. E.L. Lee. We were a little amused by the statement in a recent number that sassafras tea was used during the Civil War by the people of the South. So it was, but it was used from choice and a taste long cultivated. Long before the war, both whites and Indians made sassafras tea during the spring when the sap of the sugar maples was running. They boiled the sap a while, then added the sassafras roots and boiled them a while longer, and the tea was finished and a drink fit for the gods was the result. Was this fact alone not the cause of drinking sassafras tea in the spring of the year? The most common substitute for tea during the war was the leaves of Ilex opaca. It makes a very good tea. That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? American holly? So I actually don't believe it was American holly. This is something we're definitely going to get to in a later podcast. I actually believe that um, Dr. E.L. Lee was talking about Ilex vomitoria, which was and by some is still used as a tea and has caffeine in it. Ilex opaca has no caffeine in it. Ilex vomitoria does have caffeine in it. But that is for a future, that's for a future episode. There can be no doubt that both of those actually can be used. The hollies can be used for a tea, but obviously with the Alex Vomitori, you might want to be a little bit careful. (laughs) Anyway, so that's from the Civil War. Now, there is an interesting patent from 1871 where Benjamin Bates talks about an improvement in root or tonic beer. And in his improvement in root or tonic beer, he talks about mixing together a variety of different things to make something that would be similar to what we know as root beer, and it would include hops, sassafras, ginger, and southern prickly ash. So he would use those together to make a root beer. Root beer has been sold since the 1840s, or written recipes for root beers have at least been around since the 1860s, But Heyer's root beer first came out in the mid-1870s. That's when we first had Heyer's root beer. Heyer's root beer is actually the second oldest soft drink. The oldest soft drink is Werner's ginger ale. Have you ever heard of Werner's? I've never heard of Werner's ginger ale either. But Heyer's root beer is the second older. That doesn't surprise me, ginger ale. Yeah. Heyer's root beer started off as a powder. And for 25 cents, you could get a little powder mixture, which you'd mix with about five gallons of water. And then later in 1884, a syrup was produced for the typical soda fountain. So here's the interesting thing. Heyer's root beer kits, which were available in North America from the early 1900s, really through the 1980s, would allow people to mix your root beer extract with water, sugar, and yeast, and you'd brew your own, you know, real live root beer with alcohol in it. What most people had was root beer that wasn't bottled. So besides root beer, I want to point out that there are two other really interesting plants which can be used to make things very similar to root beer, and those include birch beer, birch beer made with uh, sweet birch, and besides birch beer, we also have sarsaparilla, which comes from <laughs> we always said sarsaparilla. It's sarsaparilla. It has an R in there. Okay. That's why I'm pronouncing Sarsaparilla. <laughs> I, I feel very, you know. Pirate. You're pirating. I feel very pirating today. <laughs> so in the 1960s, they were forced to stop using the roots of sassafras for root beer because of the presence of saffron in those roots or in the essential oil of mm-hmm. sassafras, which was at that point known to be a carcinogen of one sort or another. 
So a listener emailed us asking where to buy plants, to source plants for them. And so, yes. So I must say that we've already talked about how sassafras is native. And it can be found um, mostly along open forested uh, areas. But, you know, in urban areas, why couldn't uh, we try with no problem whatsoever? Because they can tend to be a little weedy, you know, if the right environment exists. They love high rainfall, though, and lots of humidity. And that makes sense why we see it all over in the southeast part of the country. Beautiful fall color, uh, we've already mentioned, so it would be it would fulfill that ornamental quality that uh, most homeowners want. And uh, it can it can exist in lots of soil types, mm-hmm. you know, except compacted situations, which we always have to amend. You know, there's other uh, uses, culinary uses for it, or I should say medicinal, excuse me, medicinal uses. Have you ever heard uh, that it was used to treat scurvy? I have never heard that. Yes. So vitamin C. Yes, vitamin C, swelling, mm-hmm. bronchitis, you know, also uses a fungicide. And it was a early toothbrush. They were crafted from uh, sassafras twigs or wood because of its aromatic properties. Right. The, so, wood, the wood of the sassafras is actually known to be pretty solid wood mm-hmm. and, you know, reasonably... It's known as, in the durability scale, it's very high up there in the durability scale. Now, if you're trying to build your native population in your property, it's also a great host plant for your spice bush swallowtail. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, actually, that makes sense. Yes, okay. yes. So it's a, We have a few in the gardens, and they're all just pretty, pretty trees. Yes, they are very pretty. Now, I did look into how it is used as part of chemotherapy, which is interesting given that saffron is somewhat of a danger. So it's aimed at the destruction of malignant cells using a variety of agents that directly affect cellular growth and development of cancer. Now, now that just conflicts. So we heard it it as carcinogenic, and now we hear it's not carcinogenic. Now, back to being afraid of of eating some things, and and I promised a quote, and and it's by an author that writes uh, one of our big ornamental encyclopedias. And uh, I liked when he said, some concerns that sassafras is carcinogenic, but then what isn't since living can be constructed as dangerous to one's health? (laughs) So the evidence that there is about sassafras and particularly saffron being carcinogenic, I don't want to minimize it because I certainly believe that chronic use of almost anything can be carcinogenic. And I think that saffron has proven to be carcinogenic, these various studies. But at the same time, I don't think it's exactly like exposing your skin to gamma radiation or, or, you know. Now, Tennessee Wholesale Nursery is a place that you could buy this. It's not readily available. It's not an easy transplant. It's um, not any, that's right. Speaking not, speaking as someone who, again, worked in nursery production for a while, there's certain trees that are tough to move from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And sassafras is relatively difficult to move from one place to another. Not that you can't, not that you shouldn't try. It's a tree that is worth trying to move. But just be prepared that it, it may not make it and you may need to try a few times before you have success. Right. Naturally, the way this tree is. Right. Okay. So this is a great recommendation. This is a fun one. Yes. Thank you, Noel. We appreciate it. And next time, I am really excited to say that we've got a, a plant that I've actually just been waiting to do. Julie Bessignano, and I, I hope I'm saying that last name right, but Julie Bessignano had said Mustard, please. Mustard sandwiches are the best. We'll talk about that next week. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us. This has been The Plants We Eat. 
a production of the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens with the UNC Charlotte College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Isle Group. Next week, hey, we'll talk about mustard. We look forward to talking to you then.